and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and our new murderer has a look of ill willy about him. Ill willy? Unfriendly disposition. Ah, yes. Most of them do in their mugshots. It's true. Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, welcome to Addicted to Murder. Courtney just said that. I always feel like I repeat you, but... How are you doing? You know what? I'm doing pretty good. Good. Yeah. This is our second one we're recording in a day. So we'll see if we still are on fire because we did just finish Anthony so well. And that last one was kind of a long one. It was. Yeah. There was a lot to kind of wrap pack up. into that, mm-hmm. that last episode. Yeah. So, so. Um, but yeah, new, new, new person today. But before that, Courtney, why don't you ask me your question? All right, so I've got a two-parter question today, just to, you know, throw you off a little. Mm-hmm. So there are some opposites. So the first part of the question is, what is a book that you think is better than the movie version that was made of it? All of them? I mean, yes, okay. but is there a specific one uh, that you're okay. like? Okay, Dr. Sleep. Okay, all right. That book is so good. And I was so excited for the movie, and I even saw it in the theater, and I was, it was okay. I mean, you gotta like Ewan McGregor, although I didn't see him as Danny Torrance, but um, so good. I totally recommend it for everyone. It will make you laugh. It will make you cry. It'll make you like your starfish pucker, like all of the things. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. The book, I assume. The book. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the second part is, is there any? movie adaptation that you think was better than the book or that you enjoyed more than the book you know I would say maybe high fidelity Mm. um maybe it's because I love John Cusack or because actually the the movie besides the fact that the book is is British um and the movie is not um it's almost like word for word script so maybe but that's that you know I don't Mm -hmm. know if you've seen High Fidelity but okay so it's you know it's not like there's like a huge amount of plot (laughs) (laughs) or like you know you need all this CGI stuff right but yeah Mm -hmm. what about you yeah so I knew I was going to be disappointed going in to seeing the movie version of The Giver I don't know that one either the book. book The Giver is literally my favorite book of all time um it's meant for definitely like a a kid's young adult sort of book Mm -hmm. um but yeah they just didn't do it justice and the movie was terrible um so that was really sad and then on the other end um for me it's not necessarily a movie but it was a tv series or a limited series um but little fires everywhere Mm. um i read the book and i watched the series and Mm -hmm. yeah I thought they did a really amazing job with the series, and I kind of liked the, I liked the changes that they made to the story. Wasn't the book a British person too? I don't think so. No. I read Little Fires Everywhere. I thought that it was a British. Well, it's been a while. Yeah, I know it took place in like the good old Midwest. Oh, okay. Thing. I'm mixing up my, my whatevers, mm-hmm. my Reese, my Reese Witherspoon series. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that was a good series. Yeah. Okay. That was an interesting question. If I'm going to go, if I'm going to go like young adult, and I know I think I've talked to you about this and you're like, I don't like Stephanie Meyer, but The Host was mm. such a good book. 
uh, another one that just like killed me and made me cry. And then the movie was that's a big letdown. Nice. Yeah. So many movies are. I know. I know. Um. Okay. Well, good question, Courtney. Thanks. Um, let's move on to. Go ahead. Tell us a little bit. Oh wait. Nope. I've got a little thing. I've got a little ditty that I wrote. Hold on. My intro. Courtney, she went and did it again. She found another horrible human to talk about and to study. This guy is abhorrent. And I feel like he's a mixture between Richard Ramirez and Clifford Olson. You know, he's not discriminatory in his victim type, and he's extremely sadistic. Sadistic. In this case, we'll be discussing child murder. So if you don't, if you can't handle that, if that's trigger, just skip this whole case. Courtney, can you tell me how you came across this butt face? So I'd originally heard about this guy on an episode of the show Most Evil, which is a Discovery ID show, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like hadn't remembered his name, you know, because it's been a while since I'd seen it. And so I came across this book that we're going to be using um, through the window, the terrifying true story of cross-country killer Tommy Lynn Sells. And as I was reading the description on the back, I realized, oh, I remember this guy. I remember this part of the story. And so I bought the book, and here we are. And uh, I didn't know who this was, but it doesn't surprise me that he was in Oregon for a minute. Don't they all come to Oregon for a minute? <laughs> I don't know, right? I don't know what it if is. If any of them ever leave their hometowns, they come to Oregon. Yeah, just, I mean, he wasn't here for a long period of time, but yeah, he passed through. He did. So, all right, so here we go. So, I'll... Uh, <clears throat> Well, as we know, most of the serial killers we discuss, you know, had a cher- terrible childhood, and Tommy Lincells was no different. He was born on June 28, 1964, in Oakland, California, and he was actually part of a pair, meaning he was a twin. Nina Sells and William Sells was thought to have been, sorry, Nina Sells was the mother, and William Sells was thought to have been the father. His twin was named Tammy Jane. They had two older siblings named Terry Joe and Timothy Lee, and eventually would have younger siblings, another set of twins, Jerry Kevin and Jimmy Keith, and Randy Jean. And I can see, you know, Courtney, these parents definitely like double names. Yes. Um, so Tommy Lynn claimed that all of these children were actually fathered by a man named Joe Lovins, but legally, William Sells was the father. So that was a ton of kids to care for, regardless of who was the real father. William worked a regular job, but oftentimes he would turn to Joe, the possible bio dad, for extra money. Tommy Lynn said that his mother confirmed that because of the debts that William ran up, Joe would uh, pay William's debts off. But in order to do that, he made William claim all the children as his. Does this make sense how I'm explaining that? A little bit, yeah. Could you do a better job? No, I think you did it justice. So that's a fucked up situation. Um, If it's true, then you have a definite deadbeat bio dad and lots of manipulation and untruths in this household. What do you think, Courtney? Yeah, it would certainly be very confusing for the children to have two very different potential father figures in and out of their lives in various ways. And it does not set up Tommy Lynn or his siblings for healthy relationships with their parents or others. Joe Levins would eventually teach Tommy Lynn that, quote, dead men tell no tales. And this credo would become a model to live by 
when Tommy Lynn eventually broke bad. The family moved to Missouri when Tommy and his twin were 18 months old. Tammy Jean soon developed a very high fever. She was taken to the hospital where she was diagnosed with pneumonia. She was put into an oxygen tent, and 12 12 hours later, she succumbed to her illness and passed away. Nina demanded an autopsy, and it turned out that Tommy Jean really had spinal meningitis, and it was just very sad. So, Courtney, we've never really talked about twins before or their bond, and I have to be honest, twins fascinate me. Can you tell us anything about the twin bond and what this may have done to the surviving twin, even at this young of an age? So there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that supports the idea that twins do share like a special kind of bond that's different than those of other siblings. You know, many twins, for example, report being able to feel what the other feels or know what the other is thinking, even if they're like far apart, like they're not even in the same room. Um, You know, and some research suggests that this bond is created in the womb um, and that these similarities in development from being in the same kind of prenatal conditions can explain this closeness. So like they were exposed to all the the same things um, in utero, and so they developed, like their brains developed and stuff Mm -hmm. in similar ways, um, essentially. And, you know, while infants and toddlers do not understand the concept of death, obviously, um, they can feel that acute loss and grief about being separated from somebody that they are closely bonded with. So I imagine, you know, not that he would have known this was happening or been able to express it, but that Tommy Lynn experienced a lot of of grief losing his twin sister. Tommy Lynn then developed a high fever um, on the day of his twin sister's funeral. He was rushed to the same hospital, and he was given the same diagnosis by the same doctor. His mom freaked out and took him out of the hospital, determined to take him somewhere else for a second opinion. But his fever broke on the way. So, um, Courtney, do you think this was merely a fluke occurrence, or do you think it had anything to do with missing his twin? I think that it's likely that Tommy Lynn did have meningitis like his sister did. You know, given their close proximity to each other, it would be strange for one to get it and not the other. Um, but, you know, he may have just had a stronger immune system or a less serious mutation that, you know, it just didn't impact him as much as it did her. Yeah, I mean, it's it's contagious. So it's weird to me that the doctor would again say it's pneumonia after <laughs> whatever well that doctor thought it was pneumonia for right that's what i'm saying for the sister yeah yeah it's weird that he would not just automatically i mean i don't know how they did it back then but i think that they do like a spinal tap for meningitis anyhow it doesn't matter he got better after the death of his sister tommy lynn's mom transferred him to her sister for care so he she just i guess was overwhelmed by all the children i don't know or maybe it was too sad Having just the one twin, I'm not sure. But he stayed with his aunt for over two years. So now Tommy Lynn claims that he enjoyed this time with his aunt more than any other time in his childhood. Um, He had two older cousins that doted upon him. And it sounds like they were a really tight-knit family unit. And her name, um, the mom's name was Nina, like I said. And Nina never came by to visit Tommy Lynn or inquired about him. And his aunt Bonnie was really eager to legally adopt him. And when she brought this up to Nina, Nina lost her shit. She immediately took Tommy Lynn out of the only stable home he had known. And to add salt to an open wound, when Bonnie tried to visit Tommy Lynn, Nina would not allow it. She wouldn't even allow her to hug the little boy goodbye. 
Bonnie later reflects that she wishes she had hired a lawyer and tried to take him out of Nina's care. Courtney, let's explore. I'm sensing attachment injuries and, you know, what else? Uh, Can we also discuss why Nina freaked out when her sister wanted to adopt Tommy Lynn? Sorry. She had neglected him for years. We are definitely looking at attachment issues here. You know, the most important age for forming healthy attachments is between, you know, birth and age three. And, you know, Tommy Lynn spent at least half of this time period living with his aunt um, in a loving and nurturing environment. So I imagine that he probably had a pretty secure attachment to her and felt very safe in that setting. So being ripped away from that relationship would likely have been very traumatic for him. Um, it would be, you know, taking him away from the, the love mm-hmm. and the safety mm-hmm. that he's known there and into a unloving and unsafe environment. Um, and then as for Nina's reaction, it's actually a very common kind of reaction for biological parents to balk at the thought of giving up their legal rights, even if their children are not in their care and haven't been for a while. You know, it's very difficult for a mother to permanently give them up. Um, you know, there's, I think, a great deal of, of shame involved um, being a mother who's not with their kids um, and a lot of shame having to admit that they failed at being a mother. Um, and so oftentimes this, that fear of, of feeling shame or you know, not wanting to be thought of as a bad mother or a bad parent um, kind of leads to these types of decisions. I'm not a mom, so I can't, you know, I, the, coming from my non-mom place, it just seems extremely selfish to me. I mean... Not it, putting the needs of Tommy Lynn above her own hubris or whatever you want to call it. Ego. It definitely can be, Yeah. Well, at age seven, Tommy Lynn learned how to drink with his maternal grandfather. So that's the kind of home he went into, right? And that's Pa Brown. He was abusing alcohol enough that he started to skip school so he could drink the booze found in his grandpa's truck. Eventually, he was out of school more than he was in. Quote, he was the kind of child that whenever you wanted him, whatever you wanted him to do, he was going to make sure he did not do it. Going to school was one of those things. And that was a quote his mom said. So at age eight, Tommy Lynn developed an unhealthy relationship with a man in a nearby town. I am thinking about Eric here. Yes. Napolitano. Yep. The name of this man was not made known in the book we're using. Um, I think they said his first name at some point, but I wasn't positive. It was kind of out of sequence. But anyhow, this man started grooming Tommy Lynn by taking him on little trips to the pool hall and by giving him gifts. He would stay a couple days with this man, but eventually he would spend longer and eventually he moved in with him. Um, I guess his mom did try to like convince him to stay with her, but he would throw these huge fits and eventually she gave in. So Tommy Lynn loved having spending cash all the time. I mean, who doesn't? But it came with the price. The man was a pedophile who for years sexually abused Tommy Lynn and other boys. He was unmarried. He had lots of boys in and out of his house. Here's a quote from the book. Quote, after the first time the man made Tommy have sex with him, the young boy curled up in a tight ball, alone and and lonely. All he wanted was to talk to someone, anyone, but no one was there. The man in question was eventually um, brought in for questioning in 2000, but he denied all allegations. So I don't think any charges were ever brought against him. 
So Courtney, let's assume that Tommy Lynn is telling the truth. Walk us through what this trauma is doing to Tommy. So let's let's imagine, you know, little eight-year-old Tommy Lynn. He lost his twin sister while still a toddler, was ripped away from the loving home that he knew, and was placed back with his neglectful mother in an environment full of secrets and lies. You know, this is a little boy who's probably desperate for attention and care from adults, you know, making him the perfect target for a pedophile. You know, the sexual abuse would have been painful as, you know, young bodies are not meant for sexual activity, especially with an adult body, you know, and he would be learning that sex and violence are connected, that he could or had to use sex to get his needs met. And that no adults cared enough about him to protect him. By 10 years of age, Tommy was using marijuana. Joe Lovins, his potential bio dad, passed away when he was 11. And I guess this really affected Tommy. I'm not sure if at this time he believed Joe was his bio dad or not, but it impacted him. At his funeral, he spoke to the coffin, quote, There's a whole lot in my life that's really messed up, Dad. I'm ready to talk to you now. I wish you didn't have to leave me so soon. I'm really going to miss you. And I guess he was crying when he was saying this, and his grandmother spanked him for crying and reprimanded him for showing this emotion in public. So one night when he was 13, he was staying at his grandmother's house, the same one who smacked him at the funeral, and he, for some reason, decided to get naked and climb into her bed while she was sleeping. And she said, quote, you better get your ass out of this bed and stop this shit. He did right away, and he never tried that again. Courtney, can you speculate as to the motivation for Tommy to have done that? You know, given the extensive sexual abuse he experienced, I would guess that Tommy Lynn was, you know, seeking a connection with his grandmother. And this was the only way he really knew how to connect with adults. Well, and going back to her smacking him for crying in public, um, I know that that is not something you should do to a child. Um, can This isn't scripted, so I know I'm throwing this at you a little bit, but can you tell us what happens when a child is um, not allowed to show their emotions, especially with a tragic thing like this? Yeah, I mean, when a child is reprimanded um, and punished for showing their emotions, then they learn that um, having those emotions is bad or wrong um, and that they need to keep them hidden mm -hmm. um, or they will, you know, get reprimanded again. And so really it, it teaches kids to push their feelings down, to stuff them um, and to not deal with their feelings, which ultimately, you know, leads to many other problems mm -hmm. because emotions, they're going to come out one way or another. So they could come out in rage. They could come out in um, like self-harm. There could be all sorts of... Yeah, it can come out in substance abuse. Mm -hmm. It can, yeah, anger, like in, yeah, anger, rages, all of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, later on that year, Tommy, who was staying with that pedophile, walked over to his mom's trailer to visit, only to discover that his mom and his siblings had moved away without telling him, without saying goodbye. Um, I know we haven't gone over Dahmer yet, but kind of <laughs> reminds me of Jeffrey Dahmer a little bit. And Tommy ended up going out on his own at age 14. Courtney? So if there is any hope left in Tommy Land that his mom cared about him, this was likely the final straw that broke any trust he had left for the world. You know, how can a person trust anyone else 
if their own mother just leaves and abandoned them with a predator without looking back at all. You know, and I can only imagine the anger and the hurt and fear that he experienced. Right. So now Tommy Lynn is 14 years old. This is like an eighth grader that we're talking about. Having to figure out how to support himself, find shelter and food and safety all on his own. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's heartbreaking. When you think back to, you know, eighth, ninth grade, it's like you're in puberty, too. So mm-hmm. you've got all sorts of things going on <laughs> physiologically, and mm-hmm. then you're compounding it with this trauma. Right. And desolateness. Is that a word? Um, I don't know. Just mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely some desperation, too. Abandonment issues, man. Mm-hmm. Like, thinking back to myself in eighth grade... I would not have survived. No. Not not easily. <laughs> I mean, not that he survived easily too, but like right. I would not have been ready to be on my own. Yeah. Well, a couple days after learning his family was gone, Tommy's anger progressed and he pistol whipped a woman who made him mad. On July 5th, 1979, Tommy broke into a house in Port Gibson, Mississippi after the inhabitants were fast asleep. He had a 32 caliber firearm and he hid in the dwelling. When he was sure all the people were sleeping, he drank some milk from the fridge and went exploring. Kathleen, who lived in the house, heard noises around 3 a.m. When she was able to fully wake herself, she turned to her husband, who was in bed with her, and he said, quote, I'm bleeding. When he went to the bathroom to see what had happened, he suddenly dropped to the floor, dead from a gunshot wound. When police were summoned, they found no evidence, no motive. It was also very tragic and confusing. Tommy, at age 15, killed again in 1980. His victim was a random man, and he killed him with an ice pick. It apparently was a gang fight in Oakland, and he had seriously, and he was also seriously wounded. When questioned by officers if he had killed someone, he responded with, quote, I ought to. I stabbed him a bunch of times. Apparently no body, no crime, because he was not taken in for this, or, or perhaps he claimed self-defense. Regardless, he left against medical advice from the hospital when the nurse tried to insert a catheter, and he freaked out. So I know this is an abrupt shift, but um, that's just kind of the way the book <laughs> went, right? Um, so Courtney, he started killing very young. What do you think happened here? Do you think that despite his young age, he could be categorized with a personality disorder based on his actions? Yeah, so it's it's very rare for people to start killing others while still in their early teens. It doesn't happen very often. Um, in Tommy Lynn's case, I think that two main factors were driving this behavior. You know, the first is straight-up survival. You know, I imagine that he was surviving by committing crimes like burglary and theft um, and kind of had been taught by, you know, his dad not to leave any witnesses. Dead men tell no tales. Exactly. And then if he was involved at all with gangs, like, you know, that kind of gang fight situation, it can literally be a kill or be killed kind of thing. So um, he may have been just reacting, trying to survive and get out of there. You know, the second factor um, is the unexpressed and simmering rage <coughs> that he carried towards his mom and abuser which was later misdirected and taken out on kind of anybody he felt posed a threat to him. And so now, while I believe that the kind of primary diagnosis leading to Tommy Lynn's violence at this time would be what's called like complex trauma, um, you know, he also would meet criteria for conduct disorder, which is the precursor to antisocial personality disorder in adulthood. 
Tommy was in Little Rock at this time, and he spent some time in a youth home, but that was short-lived, and he moved in with a girlfriend to an apartment. Apparently, he was very, very, very promiscuous. His mother called him her, quote, little whore, and, quote, he has the gift of gab. He can make any woman believe him. He had more women than Carter had liver pills. Yeah, obviously, that, I don't know anything about Carter, but I'm assuming Carter was a drinker. I have no I idea. Know. That one went over my head. But anyways, Courtney, why do you think he was so promiscuous? Uh, can you give us a refresher on hypersexuality? Yeah. So hypersexuality is defined as an excessive preoccupation with sex and increased sexual impulses or urges. And hypersexual behavior is actually very common in teens who have experienced sexual abuse. You know, for some, they use sex as a way of connecting with others or to get their, get what they need or what they want, which is kind of what they learned from the abuse itself. Um, And for others, having a lot of sexual encounters can be a way of kind of trying to minimize the abuse by sort of taking back control over one's sexuality, sort of being like, well, I'm choosing to have sex with all these people rather than it's being something that's being done to me. So when I think of a person that was sexually abused, I would think that they might grow up and not want to have sex. You're, you're saying that's not necessarily the case. It tends to be the opposite. They tend to be hypersexualized. I'd say it's probably 50-50. Okay. Like it can go either way. Okay. In May of 1981, when Tommy was about 17, his mother was also living in Little Rock, One day, she was taking a shower when Tommy decided to get in with his mother, kind of like he did with his grandma. She, of course, was really upset and demanded he get out. She kicked him and hit him to make him leave the shower. Apparently, she was feeling very homicidal towards her son at that time. She wanted him out of her life, dead, whatever, be gone. This incident got him admitted... um, temporarily to the community health mental health clinic in Jonesbury, Arkansas for the attempted sexual assault on his mom. Courtney, my first reaction to that is in some weird way, he was trying to acquire some kind of intimate relationship with his mother, which you kind of touched on before, maybe because of the molestation, he was a victim. You know, this was how he tried to show his request for intimacy, perhaps similar to, you know, um, when children are sexually abused, they might do this to other peers Do you think that's what's happening here? It could be very well, you know, a way that that Tommy was trying to connect with his mother. Um, It could also be that Tommy had seen an opportunity to actually release some of his anger towards his mother on the intended target instead of someone else, you know. And he knew that the pain of sexual assault was the worst thing he had experienced. So that's what he tried to do. I mean, I'm just thinking to Ed Kemper here I wonder had this sexual assault been successful if maybe that would have been the end of it I don't know I mean I don't that's just a speculation throwing out there but during his first session with a psychiatrist at the facility we just talked about he claimed that he did not know why he attacked his mother and that he was very confused and not even sure about his own identity he did claim to be angry and that his mother tried to ruin or to run his life and that he did not want that interference by her he also said he did not care if he hurt others to get what he wanted um, out of his own life he felt unloved and he was always in severe emotional pain Quote, he wanted to strike out and hurt someone else to relieve his own feelings of pain. 
Courtney, we know that when someone self-harms, it's a way to feel pain physically rather than emotionally. Emotionally, Do you think that's what Tommy is trying to accomplish here in some way? A weird kind of self-harm? Kind of. Um, you know, different people tend to either internalize or externalize their emotions. So internalizers turn their anger and pain inward towards themselves and are more likely to engage in self-harm. Externalizers tend to turn their anger and pain outward and take it out on property or people. Um, So Tommy Lynn seems to be more of an externalizer, you know, with the mindset kind of of, well, my pain is not fair. It's not fair. I have to feel this way. And so if I have to be in pain, then so do you. While there, Tommy was diagnosed with substance abuse disorder, conduct disorder, under socialization under socialization and aggression. Courtney, do you agree with that? Um, Substance abuse disorder and conduct disorder I agree with. Um, I would also probably add PTSD to the mix. Um, The other two, you know, under socialization and aggression are traits or behaviors, not like a diagnosis on their own, Um, although both are probably also true. Under socialization meaning because he dropped out of school, he's not used to being around social groups his own age? Basically, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, he only had five appointments before he ended services, so I guess this wasn't like a mandatory thing. But his legal woes continued, and in March of 1982, he was arrested for public intoxication. It was at this time that his first child was born to a woman named Cindy Hannah. Cindy's parents definitely did not like Tommy, and I guess he had robbed the church that the family belonged to, so that definitely did not make it any better. Um, but that's where we're going to end today. As we get more into his future murders, there will be much more detail than his first ones. He claims that his memories on his first homicides are really fuzzy. Possibly he was too intoxicated to really remember what occurred. Maybe he was, you know, experiencing dissociation. I don't know, but that's sort of why they kind of came at us as like, oh, what? (laughs) (laughs) There wasn't a ton of detail on it, but yeah, that's, that's kind of why. Courtney? I mean, he probably was intoxicated most of the time, and I mean, I can't really say I blame him for wanting to be. You know, the the only chance this guy really had for some kind of normal life was taken away when he was removed from his Aunt Bonnie's care at the age of four. (sighs) Okay, well, we're going to stop, and I'm going to do my social media. Yes, you are. Okay, Uh, give us a shout-out on our email at addicted to murder podcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on our Instagram at addicted to M podcast, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter, addicted to murder podcast. Um, please like, listen, follow, tell your friends. And we really appreciate all that. Some comments, questions, all of that. Uh, you know, Courtney is really quick at getting back to you on Facebook, and I monitor the Instagram. So mm-hmm. between the two of us, we get it done. <laughs> All right, well, see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.